Good morning. It's a privilege to be in the pulpit this weekend, and uh, I just quickly want to say how appreciative I am, and um, my, my wife and my son, we are, of you guys, of just loving us and showing us your kindness and embracing us to be a part of this church family, so uh, we're so grateful to be here and grateful for you guys. Well, uh, like I said, my wife, Amber, and I, we have a son. His name is Noah. Noah is a year and a half, about a year and a half old, and uh, he, uh, of course, is, is just crazy right now. He's into everything. He's just, like, just all over the place, just nuts, okay? Well, uh, he's starting to use words, and it's adorable because he's starting to use words. And uh, I think back to the first word that he said. Uh, it, unfortunately, his first word was not daddy. His first word was ball. And that's, that's cool. Like, we, we like to play with the balls in the house, the basketball and football. That's a good first word, right? Well, then his second word came along, and I was really hoping it was going to be daddy, and it, of course it wasn't. It actually ended up being mama. <laughs> mama was his second word. And so ever since then, a few months ago, I've just really wanted my son to say daddy. And he hasn't said it yet. And so whenever Noah and I are, you know, I'm playing, we're hanging out, I just do this thing sometimes where I kind of get really close to his face, and I'm just like, Daddy, say Dad, say Daddy. And I think that he thinks we're playing a game right now, because what he does, I'm not kidding, what he does is he looks me in the eyes and he says, Mama. And I'm like, dude, I just want you to say, I want you to say dad. And so what I'm trying to do is, is I'm trying to do whatever I can right now to get him to say dad. So I'll tell Amber, I'm like, no, you just go in the other room. Like, just, we're just, we're just, just me and him, you know, because I know that as soon as he sees her, I'm chopped liver. He doesn't want me. He just wants mom. And so I'm like, I'll feed him dinner. I'll do bedtime. I'll do, I'll do the bath. I'll do this. Like, I'll, I'll do, like, and I'm trying to, like, I'll bring out the favorite toys, right? I really want him to notice me. I, I'm trying to get him to just, like, think I'm important. I want him to say, Daddy. And I'll let you guys know when he does. He still hasn't. <laughs> um, but I really want him to say, Dad, I want him to think that I'm important, right? I want him to say my name. I want to feel important to my son. And I get jealous whenever mom is across the house, across our, our living room, not even with us, and all he can do is look at me and say, Mama, Mama. I'm like, it's me. It's not mom. It's dad. I want you to say this. And he, doesn't, he, just, he won't right now. It's okay, though. We're working on it. But his, my, my desire for my son to, uh, you know, I want him to say dad. I want, I want to feel the importance. I want to feel that, what it feels like for my son to say dad for the first time. And this desire I have to, to feel important to my son, it's creating these childish and, and self-exalting tendencies that I'm having at home with him right now. And really, I think this kind of shines a light on just people in general. We have this innate desire to feel important. We want to feel important, to be elevated, to be recognized. We want other people to notice what we're doing and to feel important and be praised for things that we're doing. And see, the desire for importance, the desire for this, what it usually results in is some kind of self-exalting behavior. We, we do these self-exalting things and we have these self-exalting character traits that are, of course, just consumed and obsessed with self, with me. 
In God's word, he makes it very clear that when someone becomes a Christian, life is no longer about the self. It's all about the exaltation of another. It's about the exaltation of Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Glorify God in your body. So your life as a Christian now is all about the glorification and the exaltation of another. Not yourself anymore. It's all about the exaltation of Christ. So now for Christians, there's this this, uh, tension between the sinful desire of self-exaltation and the godly desire for Christ. Exaltation. And it's the duty, it's the job of a Christian to take these self exalting, these self glorifying character traits, to repent of them, and then to replace them with character that is glorifying to Christ. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open, to Roman, open up to Romans chapter 12. We'll be there in Romans 12. And Romans 12 is all about what a life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ will look like. What it looks like practically in day-to-day life. What does this look like? And so the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 is describing a life that is devoted, completely devoted to the exaltation of Christ, not the exaltation of self. And in the midst of the, the world that we live in today, in the midst of the culture that we are immersed in today, that's obsessed with self-glorification, it's obsessed with the self, it's important for Christians to understand how exactly God says to fight back against this. It's important for us to understand how God expects for his people to be living, to be behaving. He expects his people to have Christ-exalting character. So this is how you live a life that is exalting to Christ, not to yourself. So look with me now in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, it says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So you need to express your genuine love. Genuine love for God and for others through this Christ-exalting character. And Paul, he says, let love be genuine. He's imploring Christians to live with this genuine love, this real and sincere love. And so here's point number one, love genuinely. Christians need to love genuinely, real and sincere love. Your love, it must be genuine, it must be real, it must be sincere. And this genuine love, it's founded on the needs of others, on seeking the needs of others and doing whatever is necessary to meet those needs. See, genuine love, it always seeks the welfare of others first. 
And this genuine love, this real love of when you are seeking for the welfare of others before you seek for the welfare of yourself, this genuine love, it has to be done without hypocrisy. Hypocritical love is, is fake. Hypocritical love is not genuine. It's dishonest. It's, it's not real. What hypocritical love does, it attempts to make the outside look better than what's on the inside of a person. It, it hides away the sin on the inside by putting up a fake front on the outside. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, he gives us an example of what this hypocritical love looks like. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he says, um, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. This is the hypocritical love. And so the truth is, right, like we see in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So if the love that you have is not genuine, if it's filled with hypocrisy because you want others to be noticing and others to be looking at you, then it, you gain nothing. God says that doesn't gain anything. That's not the kind of love that he is after in his people. got to be genuine, sincere, no room for dishonesty. Hypocritical love, it's pretending to love. You see, the hypocrite that Jesus talks about his motivations are he wants to be seen in this positive light. He wants people to think that he's better than he is. He wants to be known as generous or kind or whatever it may be, when in reality he's not because he's being selfish. He's after self-exalting tendencies here. So in reality, this man, this hypocrite, he would never do any act of love or act of service if there wasn't an audience there to see it. Sounding his trumpets, making sure that people can see what he's about to do so they think better of him than he really is. He would never go the extra mile for someone. He would never take the love a step further. Why not? Because he's in love with himself. He's not loving the needy person. He's not loving anyone other than himself in this scenario. He's getting something out of it. He's gaining some kind of reputation. He, he's, he's getting people's opinion, people's approval, whatever he's getting. It's not real. And that's what fake love does. It pretends. It's not real. It's it's acting. I want you to think about for a minute, what does an actor or an actress do? Someone who, their career is, is that. What, what do they do? They, when the cameras are rolling and the director says action, they become someone else. They become this character that's written for them and it's their job to convince the audience that they actually are this character. They're doing whatever it takes to make you think, to make you believe that this is who they really are. This is who it is. They're acting, but whenever the cameras turn off and they stop rolling, they're back to who they really are. And this hypocrite in Matthew chapter 6, that's exactly what he's doing. He's pretending the cameras are rolling, people are around, he's being generous, he's, he's serving, he's doing these things, but it's because he wants something out of it. He wants to be seen and be recognized. That's not genuine. 
That's not real. That's not the kind of love that God would have his people to have. See, genuine Christian love, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the self. It doesn't have anything to do with yourself. It has everything to do with others. And this fake love that we're talking about, it, it, can, it can look exactly like the hypocrite in Matthew chapter 6 today. Giving and serving and being kind, doing these things in front of people because you just want to be seen in that kind of positive light. But think about where's the concern in this? The concern is not on the other person. The concern is on the self. Showing up to church, going to work, and being friendly and caring and gentle and doing all these external things. But the motivation is that you want to be recognized for it. And there's so many things that can be done. There's, there's empty words that can be said that aren't genuine. Like, like, hey, let me know if you need anything. Call me anytime. Let's get together soon. Or I'll pray for you. And then there's no follow-up. You see, that's not done. It's not, it's not genuine. It's not real. So the love that God desires for his people to have is sincere. It's, it's without any self-centeredness. It's all about others because you love them, you care about them, and you think more highly of them than you think of yourself. So we have to have genuine love for others, but this genuine love, it doesn't only describe the kind of love that Christians are to have for each other. Of course, it's describing the kind of love that you need to have for God. Genuine and sincere love. So when we think about, okay, what's the other side of this? What's the hypocrite doing? This love for God, it's just putting on a show for others to see. Trying to impress others with these external acts. So the question is, are you trying to impress someone or are you trying to please and glorify God? Doing a student ministry, I've been in student ministry for you know, several years now, it, it never fails. This always happens, okay? There's always a dude, there's always a guy in the youth group who's got a crush on a girl. And what he's going to do is he's going to think to himself, what does that girl want in a boyfriend? She wants, she's godly, so she wants, she wants a godly guy. So I've got a plan, and they think it's genius. I've got a great plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like really, really lean in and pay attention when the pastor is preaching. I'm going like to nod along with them. I'm going to pull my notes sheet out and like flap it around so they can hear it. And they know that this girl knows that I'm taking notes. And you see it every now and then. This, this boy will look over his shoulder to see, oh, is she looking? Does she see? Does she see what's going on? She does. Okay, that's good. All right, I'm godly. I'm spiritual. It's what she wants out of a guy. Then we go to church camp. We go to revival. You know, the band is there. It's like it's awesome. And the guy's like, oh, hey, check this out. I got a really, really good move up my sleeve. Hands go up in worship, right? Is she looking at me? She's looking at, okay, good, 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 good. This, this is good points right here. Yeah, she's, she definitely likes me after this because she's after like a godly guy and I'm godly. So clearly in this situation, it, it, that's, that's not real and genuine love for God. It's being done for someone else, for someone else to see, for someone else to notice. Whatever motivation it may be, it's not because of love for God. And loving God with hypocrisy, it also, it's being more concerned about what God can do for you 
than for how you can glorify him. And certainly, the truth is, there are many wonderful blessings about being a Christian. God blesses us, and there are benefits to being a Christian. So many wonderful things that we don't deserve. These are great and amazing things. But if that's the reason someone says they're a Christian, and they're in it for ulterior motives, it's not real, it's not genuine. Maybe you've heard some people say this before. I gave God a chance. I gave him a chance, I gave him a shot, I gave him a couple weeks, and he didn't do anything for me. So he must not be real. Well, obviously that's wrong because that's looking for God to give you what you want instead of being focused on your sin being forgiven. And instead of being focused on living your life in his glory, for his glory. That's a self-centered life. Having a sincere love of God is loving him because of the great price that he paid for you. And when you really love him, when you really have put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you'll obey him with a pure heart. It's because you love him. Not because you're in it for any other thing other than, God, you have saved me, you love me, and I love you. And so whenever we love God genuinely, when we have this genuine love that God is describing, it's going to result in what the Apostle Paul says next. He says it will result in hating what is evil. He says abhor what is evil, hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. So you have to hate evil and hold fast to what is good, and in this is what genuine, lo- genuine love looks like expressed. You are hating what is evil, you're holding fast to what is good. And God... He objectively, he gets to decide, he defines what is good and evil. We find in his word what is good, what is evil. He's creator. He has all authority, so he gets to define it. And he has defined it in his word, and we find it there, and he commands his people to hate what he hates. He says, you hate what I hate, and you love what I love. You hold fast to what is good. So when you face what God says is evil, the reaction of a Christian needs to be, I hate that. I hate what is evil. I hate what is sinful. And when you face what God says is good, you embrace it and you love it. And this is how you avoid evil. By hating what God hates. You can avoid evil that way. When you hate what God hates, you'll avoid the evil that would draw you to hypocrisy in the first place. Because you're loving what is good. And so hating evil, of course, it means that you see sin for the egregious act that it is. You see that it is high treason against a holy God. He hates it. And so because you love God and because your love for God is genuine, then you hate sin. You hate what he hates. And as you hate evil and as you cling to what is good, you will love God better. You will love others better. As you hate evil and love good, you'll treat others the way that God desires. You're going to be gravitating towards good and what is lovely and what is approved by God, not the things that he hates. So if you have genuine love, genuine love for God, what will happen is you will hate evil. 
So let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And as you are doing this, this is what Paul says to do. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. And this is really interesting to me because I have two brothers and I have a sister. And when I think about the way that my brothers and I show each other affection, I could not imagine showing you guys that same affection. Because the way that my brothers and I show affection to each other is we beat each other up. <laughs> and, and we play pranks on each other. And we just mess with each other like that. Like if my brothers are not making fun of me, then I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong? <laughs> what's going on here? Something, something's not right. So that's obviously not what Paul is talking about when he says to show each other this kind of brotherly affection. But think about this. What, what, what am I going to do if someone else tries to come in and, and beat up my brothers and play pranks on them and make fun of them? My love for them is going to cause me to just jump to their defense and love them and support them. My siblings, I've got a sister too, I can't leave her out, but my, my sister and my brothers and I, we're, we're best friends. We have this family, this brotherly affection for each other. And so when one of us is downcast, the others are going to try to bring that one up. I'm going to encourage and love and show support and be there for each other. This family love, this brotherly affection, and that's the kind of brotherly affection that God wants his people to have for each other the sincere and genuine love for each other. And we love each other because we are, we're a part of God's family together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're one family united under one father who's adopted us as sons and daughters. So we are family. And the thing about this family is that our, we're united even closer together than blood relative because of the Holy Spirit. And so let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good to everyone. So that's the first thing. Do good to every person. Love every person. Do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those of the household of faith. This brotherly affection you're showing to it, this, this family love that we should show to each other, it's unique to God's family. And so this means that there should be no favoritism going on as a part of God's family. No, none of that. You, you are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ with this affection. And so, you know, I know there's people in life that. You might give yourself a pass on sometimes. Like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I just I don't see eye to eye with them. Every time we hang out or every time we talk, we just kind of butt heads. It's not, it's not really a great relationship, and they're kind of a weirdo or whatever it might be. What, is, what does God say to do? He says, love them with brotherly affection. Love with brotherly affection. And then he says, and as you're doing this, as this brotherly, this family love is being carried out in your lives, here's what it's going to do. You need to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. So when you're showing honor, this is high respect, holding someone in great esteem. You're out, you're, it's outdo one another in showing respect. And we see this in Philippians 2.3, which says, do nothing from selfish ambition, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
honor others first. Count them more significant. Humble yourself and realize that God wants you to see others as more significant than you see yourself. It's like a competition. Outdo one another. That's where your minds should be. That's where the church's minds should be. It's you outdo one another. This is how serious Christians should be about treating others with respect. And so your thoughts, they should never be about how you can get what's best. Whether it's the best seat or the best food or the most attention or whatever it is, that's not the priority of a Christian. You need to be concerned about honoring and respecting others first. In humility, put others first. So what God's word is saying is that the preference of a Christian, your preference should be to show others honor rather than having others show honor to you. So stop giving your energy you got to stop giving your, your efforts and, and, and your focus to figuring out how you can receive honor, but your energy and your effort needs to be going to how can you show honor and love and respect to those around you. So right now, in light of God's word, it would be wise to evaluate yourself. Is your love genuine? Is your love genuine? Maybe... Think about what hypocritical actions need to be repented of, replaced with godly character. So clearly, clearly it's an important piece of Christian character to love others with real and genuine love. And to love God with sincere hearts. But as we see in verse 11, Christian character is also expressed by Serving God with zeal. By serving God with passion. So here's point number two. Serve God enthusiastically. Serve God enthusiastically. Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So no laziness here. No sluggish, no, no slothful behavior. Paul is saying that you cannot be lazy in regards to zeal. You should have passion for this. You shouldn't have low energy, no, not being apathetic or dull or, or half-hearted. And we see this in Ecclesiastes 9.10, which says, Whatever your hand finds to do. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever it is, do it with your might. Your might is all your strength, all of your mind, everything you are, you do it with your might. In Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Everything you do should be done with all your heart, with all your mind, because you're doing it for God, for the Lord, for Him. And so I want you to think, if you consciously made the decision... Every day, every moment, whatever your hand finds to do, to say, Lord, I know your word says, I'm doing this for you, for your service. You did that. Would you ever do anything with laziness? I mean, surely not. You would work hard with zeal, with passion. And that's the attitude that Christians should have every day. And, and it's described as being fervent in spirit. And this word fervent, it paints this picture of 
passionate intensity, like a pot of water boiling over. It's fervent. So your zeal and your energy should be boiling up and just overflowing into whatever it is that you are doing in life. A few nights ago, Amber had an errand to run, and uh, she sent me a text when she was out, and she's like, hey, I forgot to uh, start cooking the rice. Can you please put the rice on? (laughs) And I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but I have no idea how the kitchen works, okay? I just don't have a clue. And so I'm like, okay, I'll try. Like, I'll try to be a good husband here and make this work. So I got the, I mean, all it is, it's a pot and a bag of rice, and then there's water. I'm like, I got this. This is is so easy. I got it. And so I'm reading the bag, and it's like step one, you know, put water in the pot, boil it, put the rice in, bring it to a boil, and then simmer. Okay, it's easy. So I got it in there. It's going. And it just takes a really long time for this water to boil. And so I kind of just forgot about it. And uh, and I'm, I'm playing with my son Noah, and then I start to hear it. And I'm like, oh no, I forgot. And so I run back into the kitchen, and yeah, the bubbles are going over. It's, it's this, like, all over the stove, and I'm in the kitchen trying to, like, get it to stop, and I can't figure it out, and then Noah starts to cry, and I'm like, oh, no, and so I'm, like, going back and forth between, like, and so I finally pick him up, and I run in there, and then I, the genius idea, turn the stove off, right, finally, and so I just turn it off, and I'm like, okay, it's done, but for, for that, I don't know, 30 seconds, crazy 30 seconds, right, it, that pot, it was, it was fervent. It was boiling, it was bubbling over, and I couldn't get it to stop, and it was getting all over the place. And so, whenever God's word says to be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord this way, it should be this passion, this intense zeal. It's like it's bubbling up and getting out into the life, into everything that your life is involved with. This, this service, this passionate service for God, and, and nothing should be able to stop it. Being fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. And another place in scripture where this phrase is used is it's used to describe Apollos. In Acts chapter 18 verse 25 it says, In being fervent in spirit, the same phrase, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And so this passion and this zeal being fervent in spirit, it has a focus, and the focus is service to God. And Apollos, he modeled this for us to see. What did he use his energy for? To teach others about Jesus. He didn't keep all of his head knowledge inside, all for himself. He was passionate and intense about sharing the gospel with people around him. And so when it comes to serving God, there should be no laziness and and any half-heartedness. There should be no hint of lukewarmness or sluggishness or slothfulness. There shouldn't be any of that involved because of your zeal to serve Him, to be fervent in spirit. So serve God by being obedient to His Word. Be passionate and be zealous about, God, I'm going to be obedient to what your word says to do. I'm going to obey you because of my genuine love for you. I'm going to obey you, fervent in spirit. I'm going to be fervent in spirit the same way that Apollos was. I'm going to be passionate and zealous about sharing the gospel with those who need it. Teaching things concerning you, that's what I'm going to do. And then it's saying, God, I'm going to serve you passionately by getting involved with my church. And serving you at my church and serving others through this way, God, help me to be passionate and zealous about this. This is what God desires from his people. 
This is Christ-exalting character, to be serving God enthusiastically. So surely you have, certainly you have things that you are enthusiastic about. Things that get you excited, right? Well, as a Christian, one of these things, one of these top priority things need to be serving God. Passionate, enthusiastic about serving Him. And then Paul continues there in verse 12. And he says three things in verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So Christians, Christians should really be the most hopeful people in the world. Christians should have so much hope. We we, we have the hope of Christ. Our hope is placed in Jesus Christ. That's why we're so hopeful, because of who it's placed in. So what Paul is saying is that Christians need to have their minds set on eternity. All three of these things, you see eternity there. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Your mind is focused on eternity. So here's point number three. Think eternally. Think eternity. Eternally. Live your life with eternity in mind. So when he says to rejoice in hope, to rejoice is, of course, to be joyful, to have great delight. And he says rejoice in hope. What what exactly is this hope that we're rejoicing in? It's the hope of Christ's return. And along with the return of Christ comes our complete redemption, our being made like Jesus. And so the promise of Scripture is, the one that we have hope in and we rejoice in, is that if you've put your trust in Christ, one day... You will be made like him. No more sin, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow. It's just perfection in the presence of our perfect Christ. And enjoying his presence for all eternity, hope is found in this truth. It's where your hope needs to be found and anchored in this hope that we have in Christ, it's not like any earthly hope. You understand? There's so many things in life that we may put our hope in that's earthly. And of course, these earthly things, they they let us down. There's always a chance that your hopes are going to be let down by earthly things. So many things that I hope in, or I hope for daily. One of these things is uh, I hope that traffic isn't bad on my way to work, right? Traffic's always bad around here, I'm learning. But, oh well. But, you know, truthfully, I'm being honest with you guys, I live like three minutes away, so traffic isn't really now what I'm worried about, okay? It's not traffic. Now it's become worse. It's become, I hope that the two lights that I hit on the way to work are green. (laughs) That's what I'm hoping. And, of course, my hope gets let down all the time because it's an earthly thing, right? And there's this other thing, the gas prices here. You know, being from Georgia, not used to this still, um, every time I put gas in my car, I'm like, man, I hope that that's down next time. Next time comes around, nope. <laughs> Those hopes were just crushed, just let down. And then there's the hope that I have of, man, I really hope that my son doesn't wake up at 5 a.m. again for the third day in the row. Can you please let us sleep? And yeah, that hope gets crushed pretty often. <laughs> These earthly things that you put your hope in, there's always a chance that they're just going to get crushed, that your hopes are not going to come, come true. But... The hope that we have in Christ, it has no uncertainty. 
It is completely certain. The things that he has promised, his return and the redemption of his people, it's going to happen. If you've put your trust in him, you will be made like him. One day. It is secure. Christ has secured this. It's just not here yet. And so we are hoping and rejoicing in our hope because of the wonderful promise that we have. And, And the truth is, there's no reason to doubt this. Because Christ secured the hope. And he secured it through his resurrection. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we praise God for this hope that Christ is our hope in life, in death, in lows, in highs, in everything. Christ is our hope. He secured this. It is completely secure. It's certain because he rose again. And this hope, this hope of a future, our future inheritance with Christ, what it should do for Christians is it should provide joy right now. This very moment should provide joy for Christians. You know, the truth is there's no such thing as a hopeless Christian. No such thing as a hopeless Christian. Because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So yeah, there will be times of sorrow. There will be times of pain and heartache. They will come. It's part of this fallen world. It's going to happen. It's there in Scripture. We know what's going to happen. Sickness, death, suffering. But rejoicing in the hope of Christ will keep you from feeling hopeless. Rejoicing daily because of this hope that we have, this promise that we have that we can hope in, it will keep you from thinking to yourself that there is no hope. Because you're thinking eternally. You're thinking about eternity, this this hope that we have our minds set on, that we're hoping in, that we are anchored on. So you've got to live each day with eternity on your mind. Thinking about the future, thinking about what's to come. If you're too focused on what's happening right now in the immediate, what's going on around. If you're too focused there, then yeah, it's going to be bleak. If that's where your focus is, then yeah, hopelessness might set in at times because what's happening right here, right now, it's not always good. It's not always a good thing. But focusing on the hope you have in Christ, it can make you joyful. It will make you joyful and rejoicing even through the hardest of circumstances. This is seen in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, he says he's content in any situation. He can be content in whatever situation, whether he's low, he he faced the lowest of lows, the hardest of times. He went through hunger, he went through pain, he he was shipwrecked, and he was whipped and beaten and stoned. He went through all of these hard times, and he went through times of abundance, he says. Abundance and plenty. He's been through all of these times, but he says... I've learned to be content. And then he says, to follow up that, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He can be content in life because of the strength that Christ provides. Paul's thinking eternally here. The hope that Christ gives causes him to rejoice 
through these hard times, to have hope, to rejoice, to be content in these hard times. So hoping in Christ brings strength to face difficulties, and hope is always found in Christ. And not only is it always found in Christ, this hope that we're talking about, it's only found in Christ. You can only find it there in him, this hope of eternity, this hope of redemption that we're talking about is only found in him. No one else offers it. No other religion offers it. No other group of people in the world has this hope because it's only found in Jesus Christ. And when you think about that, and when you realize that, it helps you to realize how hopeless life without Christ really is. Life without Christ is hopeless. For people without Christ, people who do not trust in him, the highest thing they can hope for, the highest hopes that a life without Christ has is for a prosperous and pain-free life on earth. And that's hopeless. So without Christ, it doesn't matter how painful life gets, you will always, when you have Christ, you will always have the hope of eternity with him. So we have rejoicing in hope, and Paul says, not only this, do you rejoice in hope, but you are to persevere in tribulation. You persevere through hard times, and the instinctual reaction, the gut reaction that we have to hard times, to trials, is to be upset, to wish it away, to say, God, I don't know why this is happening, I don't like this, can you please take it away? But God says in his word to be patient and persevere through tribulation and to trust him through the pain. 1 Peter 4:19 says, "Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good." So first of all, what Peter is establishing here is that when you suffer, when you face trials and tribulations, God has not lost control. God remains Sovereign. He will forever be sovereign, and nothing will change that. Nothing can ever change God's sovereign control over all things. And it says that when you suffer according to God's will, it's happening according to God's plan. God is sovereign over this. He's in control over this. And maybe, probably, you will never understand why are you letting this happen? Why is this happening? Why are you sending? Why, God? Why is this going on? You probably are not going to get the why, but it's okay. God is infinitely wiser than we are. He's good. He's loving. He loves us this way. So that's not the point. It's not to ask why, but here's the thing. You can always trust That your trials, it doesn't mean that God has been removed from his throne. He's always on his throne, always ruling, always reigning, always there. And you can trust that. And when you face trials, what we're to do is entrust yourself to God. And entrusting God, it's, it's this actively, it's this decision, this conscious decision to put yourself in the care of God's hands. So when trials are coming, it's, it's praying to God and saying, God, I don't understand this, but you're sovereign, 
You're in control of all things, and I'm going to trust you. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust that you know what you're doing, that you're in control, and I need to trust you right now. And trusting him is what we have to do. And you see, remaining patient in tribulation, it builds from rejoicing in hope. Whenever you're rejoicing because of the hope of Christ, you can face these trials and tribulations and you can persevere confidently through them because your mind is set on eternity, on the hope that Christ provides. It's not here. It's not what's going on around you. And it's important that we always remember Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. It's so important. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So you need to face trials and tribulation with eternity in mind. No, the situation is not good. Situation is not good. But God is working for a good outcome. And the good outcome that he's working for, that we see in his word, is you being made more like Jesus. And that's the best thing for you. There's nothing better than this promise that he's working in you to make you more like Jesus. So as troubles are coming, the proper way to handle this with having this eternal mindset is, is to be patient, to entrust yourself into the hands and the care of God because he's faithful and you just trust that God is working for your good, which is conforming you to the image of Jesus. In the final part of verse 12, he says, be constant in prayer. So you can see how thinking eternally, all three of these things, you're rejoicing in hope, the hope of Christ. You're being patient in tribulation. You're thinking about eternity. You're being constant in prayer, constantly taking yourself before God and praying. Being constant in prayer, it's, it's being in a constant state of dependence upon God. When you are constantly in prayer, constantly going to God in prayer, you're expressing your complete dependence upon Him for everything. And we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it says, pray without ceasing. We know, of course, this doesn't mean that you're praying every second of every day, all the time, 24-7, you're in uninterrupted prayer. It's not what that means. It means that you are constant in it. You're praying throughout the day. Each day, throughout it, when something comes up, whatever it is, you're taking it straight to God in prayer. Constant. It's a habit. It's not an occasion. Whenever you are the hardest situation at work, you take it straight to God. God, I don't get it. This is hard, but help me to trust you right now. Help me to entrust you with this. When you hear about someone in need, you pray for that person. You ask God to meet their needs. You ask God to help you see how you can meet the need. Whenever you're overwhelmed, you go to God. You're constantly in prayer when you're sick, when you're tired, whatever it is, being constant in prayer, expressing to God that I am completely and totally dependent upon you. So Christians, we need to treat prayer the way that we will treat eating 
and sleeping and taking care of your kids, it's a, it's a non-negotiable. You're, you're going to pray. You're going to make time to do this. It's a priority because God says to make it a priority, to be depending on God this way. In Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So whatever your requests are, whatever you're facing, whatever it is, take the requests to God, being constant in prayer. You need to understand that without this constant dependence upon God, this constant prayer, the joy that we're to have, this endurance that we're to have, it's not possible without being completely dependent upon God and expressing that through prayer. So after a few points here about your relationship with God, about thinking eternally about these things about God, Paul, he turns it back at this last verse and and he says to look at your relationship with others. And by the way, your relationship with others, the way that you treat others, it really does say a lot about your relationship with God. And so here's what he says. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here's point number four. Live generously. Live generously. God expects for his people to be meeting the needs of other Christians. When your brothers and sisters in Christ are facing need, God expects for you, for the church, for other Christians to meet the needs. So whatever the need might be, whatever it may be, if you are able, if you have the resources, if you can, then you should contribute towards the need. This is not selfish here. This is Christ-exalting character, loving others. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? So if you have the resources to meet the need of a brother or sister in Christ, you need to do it. You need to meet it. It should be eager to meet this need. So if if it's money, if it's monetary, yes, if you have what it takes, if you can, if you can meet this need, then take care of it. Contribute to the needs of the saints. But if it's not money... Maybe someone just needs a friend. Maybe it's counseling, a listening ear, something like that. If you have the time, if you have the resources, then you give it. You contribute to this need. You give them your ear. You give them your time. Someone's lonely. You embrace them. Even something as simple as transportation. What need needs to be met? And are you able to meet the need? If so, Contribute. This is how God expects for his people to be living with each other. And so I want you to listen again to the strong words in 1 John 3. He says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. So that's the picture. That's what's happening. When you recognize a need, and and you see, 
I can meet that. I have the resource to do that. And you decide not to. What you're doing is you're closing your heart against that person. You're closing them out of your keeping them out. And then it says, for that one, for that person, how does God's love abide in him? That behavior does not reflect the love of God. The behavior does not reflect the love that God would have his people to show one another. Be contributing to the needs of the saints. Titus chapter 3, verse 14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. And so, so this, this generosity, being generous with each other, what it does is it goes back to what he's already said in loving one another with genuine love with brotherly affection, with outdoing one another and showing honor. When doing this, be generous. When doing this, contribute to the needs of the saints. Your eyes should be open and looking to, the, to see what needs that can be met. That's what God expects from his people. And then he says, to show hospitality. So, meeting the needs and showing hospitality. Showing hospitality, it's, it's being friendly, being generous, sharing your life, sharing your home, sharing your family, sharing your food and your privacy and your time and, and your money. Being hospitable to one another. Embracing people this way, loving people this way, this is what God would have his people do. And this isn't just towards the people that you're closest to, by the way. This is to everyone. Even people that you just met. Be hospitable. Be generous. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So opportunities that you have, that the Christians have, to show hospitality, they should never be seen as an inconvenience. It should be taken with, just with eagerness. I'm going to show hospitality to this person. I'm going to be kind and be generous. I'm going to do this because this is what God would have me do. So Christians should be seeking out opportunities for this. Embracing each other in this way. Showing love and showing care, showing compassion through contributing to the needs of the saints and showing hospitality. So this Christ-exalting character, this character that God wants his people to have, it is not focused on the self. It's focused on him and it's focused on others. In Romans chapter 12, it paints a, a clear picture of what a life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ will look like. This is what a life transformed by the gospel will look like. So it's wise, it's prudent to take a look at this chapter, this entire chapter, and then take a look at your life and, and say, God, am I living these things out? Help me to see where I'm falling short. Help me to see where my love is not genuine. Help me to see if I've got an ounce of any hypocrisy in my life. Help me to see it and recognize it. And God, help me to repent of it and replace this with godly, Christ-exalting character. 
And something that I don't want you to forget is what Paul says back in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. So we're not conforming to this world. We don't look anything like the world. We're different. Christians are different. And we're being transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So your focus needs to remain on Christ. Your focus needs to remain on Jesus Christ, on the word of God and being conformed to the image of Jesus. And know that as you spend time in God's word, as you spend time in prayer, what the Holy Spirit does is he works in you and he makes you more like Jesus. He makes you, more, your character, to be Christ-exalting. If you, as you spend time with Jesus, as you spend time in God's Word, your character will begin to look more and more like the character that God desires for you to have. So you've got to be resolved today. Be resolved this week to keep pursuing Christ. To immerse yourself in His Word and be resolved to obey. Be resolved to not exalt yourself, but exalt Christ through the way that you live. Let's pray. God, thank you for being so clear to us in your word about how you would have for us to live. God, please help us to be people that please you. Let us bring you glory with our lives. Let us be people who exalt you, not ourselves. Let us love well and serve you the way that you would have us serve. Let us remember the hope that we have in you, God, and let us be generous with our lives. Let us exalt Christ with the way that we live. Help us to be people that glorify you, that are focused on bringing you glory, exalting you. Help us to do that this week. Help us to apply this to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.